He was born and raised in a Jewish family. As a young man, he came to faith in Jesus Christ, attended and graduated from Yale University, became a minister of the gospel, a teacher of the book of Revelation. There's not a whole lot he hasn't done. He is Dr. Stephen Grabener. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Been looking forward to it. This is quite quite a story. I think we're going to have quite a conversation. Your life has taken, well, I'm going to use the old hackneyed cliche, many twists and turns. Mm-hmm. Today, you're a, you're a minister of the gospel, uh, a Christian author, but you started as a in a Jewish family raised by Jews. Let's go back to the genesis of this. Tell me tell me about your your start. So um, my grandparents. Some of them came from Russia, Ukraine. The other pair came from Germany, Jewish families. Uh, Their parents were very religious. My grandparents, not so much, particularly when they came to the U.S., just kind of assimilated, you Mm -hmm. could say. Their faith became less important. But as I was growing up, my parents sent me to Hebrew school. So not during the week. During the week, I went to like a regular school. But on Sunday mornings and then Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, I would go to Hebrew school where I would interact with our local rabbi or rabbis, uh, learn about the Jewish faith, learn about the Hebrew scriptures, really explored the foundations for Judaism. I imagine that's got to be a bit of a genius thing, really, because you've got Jewish kids functioning in an entirely secular society. They're going to get some sort of Jewish influence at home. You've got synagogue on the weekend or temple on the weekend. But this, I, I imagine, is a great way to keep... Jewish kids connected to to the culture and the meaning and the depth of of, of Judaism was that kind of the intent there? Yes, right. To give us this this foundation because school obviously um, is has a predominantly Christian influence, and particularly where I was growing up, Jews were in a very small minority and faced a lot of pushback for being Jewish at different times from some of my friends. But this was a place where we other. Jews in the area would come together, study together, hang out together, uh, participate in religious festivals and traditions as well. Always really interesting to talk to somebody who began in, in a, didn't convert from one branch of Christianity to another, mm. but started in an altogether different religion. It's, it's, it's an enormous leap to make. Um, we're going to have to cross that bridge in this conversation somehow, but I'm imagining when you were a child, you did not look into the future and say, when I'm older, I shall be a Christian minister of the gospel. Yeah, no, never never even crossed my mind. Right. Uh, I remember in Hebrew school, one of my rabbis telling us that if somebody offers you a New Testament, don't take it and don't read it. Mm. And that there are people out there who want to destroy your faith. So, you know, I understand that from his perspective. Uh, clearly, Having been being a New Testament scholar and reading the New Testament, I clearly see things you know very differently now. Uh, but that uh, antagonism, that separation between Judaism and Christianity, unfortunately, is the result of a very long historical forces and cultural sure. forces, which have instead of creating bridges, have made large barriers. Tell me what your experience was like as a Jewish kid growing up in, in a Christian society. I think that, that might be a stretch of a term, but I'm just going to use that. We celebrate Christmas. 
It's everywhere. Easter is everywhere. Everything that points to Jesus, even common phrases and expressions, not all of them very desirable. It, 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 it's the Christian framework, and you as a Jew were growing up in that Christian framework. What, what pressures or challenges did that bring you, and, and how was that? Were you curious? Was it just, how, how does a Jew confront Christmas and Easter in a, Chris, in a Christian society? So you know, when I was growing up, um, most of those things just blew by when I was younger, because we, instead of celebrating Christmas, we would celebrate Hanukkah. Sure. Uh, the Gospel of John calls it the Feast of the Dedication, and it's an eight-day festival. Uh, so, you know, instead of just one day, we get eight yeah, days. That's, that's a pretty good and, deal. And, yeah. you know, it's very joyous. This is, this is one thing about Judaism, John, is that, uh, you know, all the holidays, except for the Day of Atonement, they're all very joyful. Um, just, just a lot of celebration. Man, I know, I'm sure, I'm certain you've been done this. I've, I've not asked, but to go to the Western Wall mm. on a Friday evening right. when the Sabbath is coming in, it's a riot down there. Yeah. There's dancing and singing, and it's exuberant. It's not what I think what the typical Christian would think of, of Judaism as being like. Extremely joyous. Now, it's a little hard to tell where the religion ends and the nationalism begins, but I don't think that's either here nor there. Christians typically don't have that joy. I mean, when the Sabbath comes for a Christian, I don't see too many exuberant Christians dancing in the streets, yeah. welcoming Queen Sabbath, as the, the young uh, Jewish guy from New York told me they were doing there in Jerusalem. Where does this exuberance come from? What's that about? It's, you know, it's based in this idea that the creation is good, that God created everything and he saw everything is good. Certainly, creation has been marred. But the image of God is there, marred, but still there, and creation still is good. And, and so you know, there is this tension of, you know, we long for the new heaven and the new earth. Scripture points that out. The book of Isaiah points it out. The book of Revelation points it out. But this, at the same time, from a, a Jewish perspective, and this is a bit of a, a dilemma in my own home currently, because uh, sometimes we have conversations, oh, I just can't wait for this old world to be over. And I'm like, no, 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 this world is good. It's marred, but it's good. And I think that's a really important part of understanding the Jewish perspective that, that God created everything that's good. And so food is good, and um, marital relationships are good, and family is good, and we should really enjoy these things. Yeah, amen, I can agree with that. So you started to grow, and, and, and now you're going through school. You're getting older. Um, I know your dad died when you were young. H how did that impact you? Yeah, it was a tragic accident, a malpractice. He had a heart arrhythmia, and he was in the hospital, and they were inserting a catheter. And uh, this was quite a number of years ago, and they punctured his heart. Oh. So it was very, very sudden, very tragic. And the result of that personally was for me to question a lot of things. If there's a good God, why would he let my father pass away? Sure. And I really didn't have answers for that. And so after my bar mitzvah, which is a major event in a Jewish child's growth trajectory, um, I began to drift away from my Jewish roots. Didn't have to go to temple any longer. Didn't go to Hebrew school any longer. And then... In the 60s and 70s, uh, which is when I grew up, I got very much into the 
hippie drug culture of that time. He kind of became a skeptic and was just out to enjoy life because I didn't think there was anything beyond that. What were you planning on doing with your life as a young man? Well, it would depend on which point in time and how clear my thinking was. Um, I was into acting, so I was an actor at the time, and I enjoyed being outside, so something along one of those two tracks of life. But somewhere along the line, you met Jesus. Yes. So this is a, this is like, this is a multifaceted thing. Uh, a friend of mine once told me, uh, raised in a Jewish family, that his mother said, you've become a Christian. I would be happier if you had pushed a knife into my heart. Mm. What an enormous step to take, depending, of course, on your family up- upbringing. You may have, your mom was still alive. Maybe she was very liberal in her thinking. It was just happy that you were happy. So, so I, I want to talk about the emotional decision aspect of this and what a challenge that may or may not have been. But before we get to that, mm-hmm. how do you get interested in Jesus? I, a lot of things kind of rushed together in that. Uh, so one thing was in Hebrew school when I was growing up, the rabbi would tell me certain things about the Messiah. Okay. One of my rabbis told me that he thought there could be two messiahs, a, a suffering messiah and then a kingly messiah. And the suffering messiah would die, and then the kingly messiah would come X number of years later and reign. Very interesting. So that was there. Um, he, he taught me that when the messiah came, there would be a resurrection. A number of different concepts. And when I began to explore the pages of the New Testament, I began to see how the New Testament writers applied certainly that suffering and kingly aspect of messiahship to Jesus Christ. And so there were a lot of threads that kind of pulled together on, on an internal thinking level that maybe made me more interested. But the big steps were really personal contacts with people. Mm. I was in college. A lot of different things happened in college that were providential Steps. Let me just share one. I was. I had a friend, um, and we called him Rasputin after the famous yeah. Russian monk. Yeah, how about that? He was a big guy, and he was laying on his bed, and he had a pile of quarters on his forehead. He was trying to levitate them, and these were the kind of people I hung out with. And so he, I was watching because that's the kind of person I was. And a friend of ours came into the room and told us that he had just accepted Christ. He had a long conversion story, very intricate, but you could see that his face was very different. Mm. Something had happened to him. And so as he was sharing his piece, I said, uh, well, I don't, I don't know if what you have is true or not, but I could tell that you have peace. And immediately my friend Rasputin shot up off the bed, all the quarters went flying in the air, and an immediate argument broke out between my two friends. You know, one, you know, looking back, I would say almost seemed satanic, and one reflected the peace of heaven. And so there were occurrences like that that helped me move, helped move me forward in my journey with Christ. Was it, was it, was it, was it a fearful thing for you as a you know, I told you about the experience of my friend and his mother who reacted so viscerally. Was there any f- fear hindering you? Did you think, oh my, what would my family think? My mother will disown me. What will my extended family members? Was that a concern or did you feel pretty free going forward? 
That became a concern after my conversion. Okay. Uh, so there were several key issues in my conversion. Uh, girlfriend, a number of different things, Bible prophecy that kind of all flowed together like a river to bring about conviction. But after I was converted, and I shared that with my family, there was a very strong reaction. Mm. Not as strong as your friends, but uh, it, it, was, it was really strong. It was very difficult for a number of years. Mm. People don't understand this, but a lot of persecution has been done toward the Jews in the name of Christ mm. over the centuries. And so for a Jew, it's oftentimes even difficult to say the name of Jesus because Christians have so mis misrepresented the character of Christ. And that creates part of this gulf and this separation. Yeah, that, that, makes, that, that, makes, that makes evangelism, I mean, use that term broadly, right. very difficult. Extremely yeah, so. Very, yes. But, but yeah. not so difficult that somebody couldn't reach out to you. So when people started talking to you about Jesus, did you have all these, these, these red flags? Or by now, of course, you, 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 your consciousness had expanded. You were open to any number of ideas. Were you just at that stage where it was easy to embrace stuff? So um, after my college experience, I ended up going to Israel. Um, I had received money for my bar mitzvah and decided that's how I was going to spend it. While I was on the kibbutz in Israel, I, I met several what I would call real Christians, people that demonstrated their faith. And we had a lot of conversations walking around in Israel that began to broaden my thinking. Um, and I could also see that the, that the Israelis that I interacted with, while they were Jews culturally, were not Jews in any kind of sense of faith. Sure. So they didn't really believe in Abraham, and my Christian friends did. And so that began to set up this whole thinking in my mind as well. You know, uh, where, what's really the right path here? Um, and then, as I said, once, once my conversion happened, let me just take a moment, if I could, and share that night where yeah. that change oh, take place. Would please that be do. Okay? I, I'm going to ask you about that, if there, <laughs> if there was a moment or an event. So let, let's, let's So I was that. working with a group of Christians. They were running a vegetarian restaurant, and I was already a vegetarian. So I moved in with them, and they would share different things. Um, and so I prayed. I had a couple of prayers. You know, in Corinthians, it says that the Jew seeks for a sign. So I had my signs. And one of them was that my girlfriend would begin to speak about spiritual things. So we were at a party. It was Christmas Day. I had a sore throat. A friend of mine gave me uh, an illegal drug. I didn't take it. I put it on a counter next to me. And we were talking. And when I went up to leave, it was gone. And I don't know what happened to it, but I told my friend. I just said, I think God didn't want me to have that. As my girlfriend and I were driving home, she started asking me spiritual questions. And then she began to describe this war that take, took place in heaven. And we had never talked about anything like this. When we went, got back to my house, I shared with her, I took down a Bible from my mom's bookshelf and started sharing through Daniel 9. And that night, I could see, you know, the Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac, sanctuary service, Isaiah chapter 53, Daniel chapter 9, Jesus is the Messiah. And I surrendered, and my life changed in a moment, in an instant, right there. So I wasn't really thinking, 
what's my family going to think? Right. I was just compelled to surrender. Yeah. And I did. What happened as you surrendered? Tell, tell me what was different. Uh, well, my life changed dramatically in many different ways. My relationship with my girlfriend changed, became more uh, platonic. Um, I stopped doing drugs. I stopped drinking alcohol. Uh, life changed completely in all di- different directions. Mm, mm, mm. So, so what do you do next? I've, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've got to think about the rest of my life. What do you do about that? So I had applied to school, applied to go back to school because I had dropped out. And uh, school is going to bring, excuse me, school is going to start in a couple of weeks. And so I really wrestled in prayer. Should I go? Should I not go? And I had this sense of peace that whatever path I chose, God was not going to forsake me. And so I went away to school. And it was there that I really began to study more the New Testament and studied more into Christianity. Now, was this when you went to Yale? No, this is still for my bachelor's. Right. I went to Yale for my uh, master's. You went to Yale later. Uh, I, I want to ask you about Yale. Uh, Yale for a master's. So, so uh, ex- explain that experience to me. Um, so at that point in time, I you know, had been converted for a number of years. I was serving as a pastor and wanted to further my education. Yeah. And my church was not so far from Yale. It was about an hour drive. And I got accepted. Uh, went down there and they, I wouldn't say they opened me with, Wide, welcomed me with wide open arms. They were a bit skeptical uh, just because of my faith. But um, yeah, I went to the Divinity School and had a lot of things challenged. My perspective of the scriptures as, as a revelation of God was challenged. Huh. You would not expect that to be challenged in a Divinity School, but there you go. Yes, well, you know, their perspective was very different. You know, they viewed things from a more higher critical perspective. Sure, yeah. And, but it was great. The experience was really good. I was there for two years for my master's. Well, I'm fascinated about this young Jewish guy who accepts Jesus and, as you mentioned, you alluded to, ends up working as a pastor. So we've got to get from there to there, and we'll do that in just a moment. I'm glad to be here with Dr. Stephen Grabener. This is our conversation, and we'll be right back. There's something I want to tell you about that is so important. It's My Place with Jesus. It is written's ministry to children. Take the children you care about to MyPlaceWithJesus.com. At My Place with Jesus, you'll find so much that will bless your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or the children at church. There are the My Place with Jesus Bible Guides. 21 studies that will take the children you care about into the Word of God. They'll learn the important things, especially the love of God and the sacrifice Jesus made for them. As well, take your children to journey through the Bible. It's there at MyPlaceWithJesus.com. It's a special Bible reading program that will get children into the habit of reading their Bible daily and connecting with God regularly. So don't forget, MyPlaceWithJesus.com from It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for 500. Nine programs produced by It Is Written, taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg 
and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the Reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. Welcome back to Conversations. My guest is Stephen Grabner. Stephen, a moment ago, we are talking about how uh, you'd become a Christian. You accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You mentioned that you'd become a pastor. So I'd love for you to connect these dots. Uh, how did you get from, from that, that night? You took the book down. You said, Jesus is the Messiah. You've yielded your life. Some great changes take place in your life. Now you're in ministry. Bridge that gap. So that gap was a couple of years, a number of years. And what took place in between that was I finished that semester at school and then was just questioning what's next. Um, I was interested in being involved in ministry. I wanted to share what I learned. And it was kind of questioning, should I pastoral work or what should I do? A friend of mine was, in a, was involved in a work that lay people were running and uh, they had a very large farm in Michigan, and they were starting a wholesale business, and they were using this as a means of financial support and as a way of communicating the gospel. So I went to work with them for a couple of years, and then the idea came that we should start a vegetarian restaurant in New York City. Mm. And I was thrilled with that. I grew up north of New York City. Uh, I was a vegetarian. That was my entryway into studying scriptures. And so I wanted to be part of that group. And so in the early, early 1980s, we started a vegetarian restaurant on Wall Street. It was called Country Life. A group of young people, tons of energy. Just We served about four or 500 people a day. We started two other restaurants, three other restaurants with a sister organization in New York City. So at one time, we had four restaurants running in New York City. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of work. I did an outreach through the restaurants. We did cooking classes, stress classes, um, Bible prophecy seminars down there, right in the heart of Wall Street. It was really amazing to see people's life change. Yeah, we, I, I want to ask you about that. Give me, what did you see God do? It's one thing to have the, have the restaurant functioning, but it's for ministry. Yes. What did you see? So... Numerous people would come to Bible studies that we would have on Tuesday evening, and we had a group of around 25, 30 people, and most of them worked in Wall Street. So that was very exciting. Our cooking classes, we would always have about 100 people to come. And again, this is the early 1980s. Vegetarianism wasn't as popular then as it is now, but life-changing events took place. There was oh, yeah. One man, his name was Basel, he had a seat on the stock exchange in an office on the exchange. And he came to one of the stress classes I taught. And in the class, I asked the, the participants to imagine that they were the end of their life and they were looking back, what would they like, what would they have preferred to accomplish in their life? Kind of going to the end and then looking back. And then 
Basel didn't come into the restaurant for like three weeks. And we were all like, well, I wonder what happened to him. He just kind of disappeared. And then he came in and he'd lost weight and he was tan. And it was like, you know, where have you been? And I bounded up the stairs and he was like, well, I went home after that stress class and I decided I don't want to work in New York City. I moved my office north of the city to Westchester County. Uh, he called it the country. You know, it was the suburbs, sure. but it was certainly a country compared to yeah, downtown city. Manhattan. Yeah. And he totally changed his life, just like that quickly. Uh, so it was really encouraging to see that take place. We had a number of individuals who not only changed their life in health aspects, but also yielded to Christ and mm. were baptized and began going to local churches in the area. The country life restaurants really did make a big impact. They did. They were so exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had one time, you know, we had one, we had several in New York City, Los Angeles, Boston, um, London, Paris, Osaka, Japan, um, Korea. Yeah, it was, it was going very good for a very long period. Yeah, of that, that country life restaurant in London impacted me really rather directly. So I'm, I'm, I have a, I'm so grateful. Uh, directly, indirectly, directly, but certainly an impact. If you look around the world, you know there are not so many country life restaurants. No, today. they're not. Um, I don't want to get. I, I don't want to get into the weeds here, but <laughs> talk to me about some of the challenges. Of, it's wonderful ministry. It's it's, but it's challenging ministry. So what does it take to what does it take to do something like that really successfully? I ask you this. You you're. I'm going to call you an expert in in self supporting work, and we've got to believe in self supporting work. It's ordained by God. God does great things through it. Challenging though, right? So challenging in the point that it's a lot of work. Um, And so running a restaurant, the way we did it in New York is we had a central kitchen outside of the city where they prepared most of the food. They cut the vegetables, prepared the soups, and then we would drive them into the restaurants in the city. So that made the workload less. But it's still, it was quite intensive, particularly the restaurants we were running in which we would have four to five hundred people a day from 12.30 to 2.30. So you had a you know, very concentrated amount of customers in a very small window of time. So it was, it was, it was a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My wife was the head cook, by the way. And when I talked to her today about, you know, we should start a restaurant again. She's like, no, done. <laughs> <laughs> She's asking you what you've forgotten about those old yes, days. Right. Yeah. How did you get into a full-time pastoral ministry? So there was a pastor in the Boston area, um, a pastor evangelist by the name of Bill Brace. And he invited me to come to Boston and help start a a vegetarian restaurant in Boston and be his associate in evangelism. So when we moved to the Boston area, helped establish the restaurant, and then helped raise two churches in the Boston area. Yeah, no surprise it was Bill. He's just a wonderful guy. Just, he uh, is a fantastic guy. You not, know Bill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not long ago retired, and uh, what, a, what a man of God. Yes. Uh, not, shouldn't surprise me at all that he, he was the one who tapped you on the shoulder. And, and so you raise up churches. All right, let's talk about church planting then, because it's something you have tons of experience in. Uh, walk me through that, that, uh, that experience. Boston, challenging place, man. Very much so. Challenging place to raise up churches. Right. A very, very secular place. So we had two locations. One was Waltham, uh, you know, 20, 15, 20 minute drive from downtown Boston, and then Braintree. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I worked with the Waltham area, and Bill initially started Waltham and then moved down to Braintree. And we did a lot of outreach, again, a lot of health work. We connected very closely with the restaurant. That was kind of a connecting point, a feeder to both the church as well. And when we were there, we had, again, just a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of young people, which is great, young, you know, late 20s, 30s. Um, college students or graduates from some of the universities in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. Very exciting, but, but a lot of work yeah. uh, to establish them. And so I worked there for about six years and then moved to southeastern Connecticut and pastored a district there as, as well. at that time that you got your master's at Yale. Yes, when I was in Connecticut. Okay, talk to me about church planting. In, in certain circles, it's a very big thing. Uh, the church today, well, w- there would be no church today if not for church planting. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Talk to me about some of the right ways, maybe some of the wrong ways, some of the successes, maybe some of the stumblings that that exist in church planting. Why it's important, who should do it. Talk to me about that. So church planting can take many different forms, and that's a really important idea, is that there's not one model, this is how you have to do it. So when we started, when, when Bill started the Waltham, he had a very small core of people, you know, him and maybe five other people. And it took quite a bit of time for traction to build. So we, I was part of a church plant, two church plants in this area. And when we launched our church plant, due to the number of like-minded faith believers here, we had a larger group. We had about 25, maybe 30 when we first launched. The dynamics were very different. You know, there's, there's already a certain level of energy, uh, easier to build on that kind of momentum. But the key thing is that when a person, when a, a new church plant gets started, there's a lot of, there's more freedom to try different things. Sure. Sometimes churches become traditional, not that tradition is bad, but... You can get oh, root-bound. Yes. Yeah. You know, like, well, this is how you have to do it. Yeah. Where when you're starting something new, you begin to think well, what's going to impact our community? How do we get to know our community? What should we do here to find out what the needs are in, in this local community, which is a tremendous blessing. In addition to that, when you see a little bit of growth, that, that plant is very excited because it's like, ah, we're making progress. You know, we're like moving forward. Uh, in, a, in a direction. So it creates a, a lot of energy, a lot of giving. One of the dangers or one of the questions is, how do you maintain that over a long period of time? So the church plant I helped start here in this area, we're in year 11. And, and so it's, how do we rekindle again is a really important question. What is it that happens to churches that have been around for a long time? And uh, people listening to this right now, lots of them are going to say, oh, that's my church. Churches that aren't even asking the question, how do we impact our community? They might be asking the question, what do we do? But they're not asking, what does our community need? Often churches aren't saying, how do we grow? It's not about growth. It it turns to maintenance after a while. Mm. How do we guard against that? What would you, from your experience, recommend to churches so that they continue to have an evangelism, growth, outreach, church planting mentality and approach to ministry? So contact with the community is vital. Like 
knowing what's going on in your community, um, interacting with community leaders, or finding from surveys what are the biggest questions the community is asking. You know, and that's just such, such a fundamental consideration for us. You know, as as time moves on, as society continues changing, new administrations come in, different priorities come in. It's easy to think, well, what we've done in the past is always what we need to keep doing. And certainly our message needs to be the same. But we need to be continually thinking, how do I take this message? And what part of this message is most impactful to these people? And how do I take this message and communicate it in a way that people are going to resonate with? So for example, you're well familiar with this. You know, our society likes stories. You know, rather than more didactic truth. But, you know, stories are engaging. So how do we take the truths of Scripture and communicate them that way? And what stories is our community telling? Or what questions are they asking? It's important for us. Mm-hmm. The other real key thing is to, to get all sorts of input. Like in our congregation, I'm constantly wanting to get younger minds involved. Like... Terry, you be a leader in the church. You take this because, unfortunately, oftentimes they're more in tune with what's going on. So looking at church planting, I've seen parts of the country, parts of the world where everybody was planting a church. It was, yeah, it was right. mayhem, and few, if any, of them stuck. Mm-hmm. And there can be very good reasons for that. Are there situations where a church shouldn't plant a church? Who shouldn't do this? Under what circumstances should you not be planting churches? Well, one reason not to cha- plant a church is if there's discord in the church and this is a way of getting away from one another. That happens at times where people don't like one another, they don't like the pastor or whoever, and like, oh, we're just going to go plant a church. For me, that would be a really poor reason to start a church. It really has to come from a place of we're moving together, and we're moving together in ministry. We want to expand ministry. Your ministry has been characterized by evangelism, outreach, planting, soul winning. If you went to a church that did not have that culture, mm-hmm. a lot of pastors face this. You go to a congregation, and they're just happy like they are. What do you do to begin to create a culture of Call it, I'm going to call it evangelism. That's the broad term. Sure. Culture of evangelism, church planning, out a culture of mission. What do you do if you're in a kind of a dead, dead end place? How do you go about that? Good question. So a couple of things have run through my mind. One clearly is, you know, the usage of the pulpit to paint the picture of where we should be going. That's one aspect and extremely important through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, we would hope and pray and believe that transformation is going to take place. At the same time, for organizations as a whole, churches are organizations, organisms, sometimes a crisis needs to come in to get people to think, we need to do something different. I remember a pastor friend of mine telling me about a church that he worked in, and the young people just were dwindling, just stopped coming. And there was like one young person left 
and then that young person was out on a Friday night and uh, unfortunately was got drunk, but then came to church the next morning. And it was a catalyst for the church to see we need to make a dramatic change or we're going to lose everybody. And so sometimes, not, not encouraging pastors or listeners to create crisis in their congregations, but sometimes we need to see that the crisis is there and we're slowly dying even though we're comfortable. Yeah, you don't need to create crisis. It'll, it'll find you. Yes, right. There, there's, there's an expert in the universe at creating crises. And right. He'll bring one to you if you don't uh, bring one to yourself. <laughs> comfortable. You mentioned that word comfortable. We become victims in a certain sense. Our congregations have money. Mm. They have air conditioning. I mean, unless you're north of Mason-Dixon line when the AC isn't so... That you, you, didn't have, you didn't have air conditioning in Connecticut, I'm sure. No. You had heat, <laughs> not air right. conditioning. But we, we've got what we've got, what we've got, what we've got. And it just reminds me a lot of Revelation chapter 3. You, you, mm. you, you, you say you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but you don't, reali- you don't realize. So I'm, I'm, I'm running the risk of re-asking a question. How do we help people, I'm asking this, I think, as ministers, to realize our real state? It's not good to be comfortable in church. Yeah, that's a very profound and soul-searching question. So you referenced Revelation chapter 3, a message to Laodicean church. You know, you say you're rich and increased with goods and you don't know your conditions. Laodicea is self-deceived and self-satisfied. It's interesting, no matter how many times you go back and read that passage, it's always going to say the same thing. That's right. There's never going to be this point where like, oh, you could relax now. You're okay. You know, it, it's part of the power of the word that whenever I come back in contact with it, it elicits this longing and this sense of revival and this sense of I need reformation and I can't depend on myself. I, I need the ISAV, you know, the Holy Spirit. I need the gold, the faith. I need the clothing of Christ's righteousness. And, you know, we can't manufacture that. We can preach it. We can encourage it. We can, pastors can confess, acknowledge their their own Laodicean condition, you know, be real with the congregation and and lay before the the congregation, you know, what do we do? What do we do? Mm -hmm. There's more to talk about. You've been in ministry all around the world. You've written a book I want to get to. Here's Stephen Grabiner. This is our conversation. I'm glad you're here and we'll be back here in just a moment. Hi, I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written. The It Is Written Bible studies have been used around the world by people who want to understand the Bible better. They're short, they're easy to use, and they're life-changing. And in them, you'll find the hope and the peace that you've been searching for. Sign up for your Bible guides today at no cost. You'll be glad you did. This is Pearl. When Pearl heard about the Eyes for India initiative, she decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. When Pearl's birthday came around, she invited all of her friends over for a birthday party, and the theme of the party was Eyes for India. She told her friends about the thousands of people in India who couldn't see, and how this critical eye surgery could change their lives. Instead of gifts, Pearl asked that her friends bring donations for this important project. 
Because of Pearl's influence, seven people are now able to see. Her story inspired our brand new mission kit. It's a box that has everything you need to fundraise your own project for Eyes for India. Whether it's at the front desk of your business, part of your small group, or a special church project, this kit is guaranteed to change lives. We can't wait to hear about all the creative ways you find to make this resource come to life, just like Pearl. Welcome back to Conversations. My guest is Pastor Stephen Grabiner, Dr. Stephen Grabiner, Stephen Grabiner. So, so fascinating life. Born and raised a Jew, a fascinating conversion, became a Christian, involved in ministry right away, which I think is a, is a very good example. Get people involved in ministry right away. Church planter, pastor, you're still a church pl- uh, pastor. Uh, you're still a church planter and a church pastor. <laughs> Along the way, you developed a deep love for the book of Revelation. Mm. You teach the book of Revelation. You've, you've written about Revelation. Where did this come from? Um, so before I had a conversion experience, I uh, hitchhiked across the United States uh, several times. But in one particular time, I had a, somehow there had a Bible in my backpack. And in the back of the Bible, there was this summary of each of the books and when I was scan- scanning through particularly the New Testament, which I was not familiar with, and I read Revelation, it said, you know, symbols and un- not understandable and cryptic and nobody can make sense of it. And so in my 19-year-old arrogance, I was like, well, I'm going to understand this. Challenge accepted. Exactly right. Yeah. And so I started reading and, you know, lions that are really lambs and beasts and seas and dragons. And I was like, forget this book. And I went to the Gospel of John and started reading through the New Testament. So that was your, that was your, your intro to that Revelation. That was my intro to Revelation. Forget it. Okay. Um, but, but things changed. Things changed. Yeah. So over the years, I continued to study and have made it a particular focus of study for myself. So what is it about Revelation that grabs you? The, the arc of the story in Revelation is what's really intriguing to me. You know, uh, here we have in the storyline of Revelation is this controversy, this war, cosmic conflict that begins in heaven. Now, many today, today, many people don't really believe in the existence of a personification of evil as Satan, mm. that the way Scripture portrays him. But Revelation treats Satan as a real character, and he's the deceiver, he's the accuser, he's the slanderer, the idea of blasphemy is really more misrepresentation. And so, you know, the arc of the storyline is, here's this accuser misrepresenting God. A friend of mine calls Satan the mudslinger. And, you know, he's casting aspersion on God. And then you have the heavenly council, which sings songs throughout the book of Revelation, saying, no, God really is just and true. And then you have the biggest revealer of God, which is the slain lamb, which shows us how God rules, that God rules through self-denial, God rules through self-sacrifice, God rules through being self-giving. So very different themes. And so that's, that just drew me into the book. If I would add, this is the, the, the impossible question, but I'll ask it anyway. One, two, three highlights from the book of Revelation that just make, oh, 
Now, there may be ten, but I'm asking you to pick three. What so, are three high points in Revelation? Revelation, you? Revelation chapter five, the slain lamb. Um, John sees this image. There's God is on the throne. He has a sealed book. Nobody in heaven and earth is able to open the book. But the lion from the tribe of Judah, a kingly metaphor, has overcome. But then that kingly metaphor is reinterpreted through the slain lamb. Mm. So this is how God rules the world, self-denial and Mm, mm, self-sacrifice. So that's one high point. Um, Second high point, uh, chapter 7. You have this great crowd around the throne of God, and God's going to wipe away every tear. They're going to be in God's presence forever and ever. Why? Because they've come out of great tribulation, and they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So they're going to be with God forever. Then a third major highlight, Revelation chapter 20. You know, toward the end of the story, end of what's called the thousand years, Revelation 20, verse 11, And I beheld a great white throne from whom earth and heaven fled away. So the imagery is that everything dissolves and all you see is the throne. And brings us back to chapter 5 because in the midst of the throne is the slain lamb. So those to me are three really high points. How does God rule? God's going to redeem his people. And at the end... Everybody is going to acknowledge the rightness of God in being able to rule. Revelation, by the way, that's beautiful. Revelation is this <clears throat> controverted book, misunderstood book. It's been twisted and turned and sliced and diced. Yet you arrive at a certain interpretation of the book of Revelation. Man, you could be anyway. You could be a preterist. You could be a futurist. If you're like most people, you'd be a futurist saying it's all going to happen down the end of time. What were the, what was the, what were, the, what were the guidelines that, that steered you where you were steered? Why, why do you end up where you are in your understanding of Revelation, where as a searcher, you could have ended up anywhere? Um, good question. Lots of insights. And it, to try to distill that, so, you know, so preterism says pretty much everything was written for the first century. Well, the imagery in Revelation is way too large for the small shoe of the first century. You know, it's Nero doesn't fit the parameters of the beast of Revelation 13 in any sense of the word. So it, it doesn't, preterism doesn't meet the vastness of the book. Futurism fails because it disconnects all of Christian history from what's really happening in the book of Revelations. Ah, sometime in the future, don't worry about it. So you're missing the contact where understanding Revelation from the point of view as the cosmic conflict is being played out in history throughout the ages, that, that keeps the grandeur and it helps us anchor certain parts of the book in events here in earth. So the, the conflict in the book of Revelation begins in heaven, but it's played out here on earth. And the, you know, the, all the war and the strife that we see here below is simply an earthly manifestation of that heavenly conflict. So somebody's going to hear us talking about Revelation. will hear you talking about Revelation. They're going to say, oh, I've got to, got to read that book. It's been a while. It's clearly important. I must take that Bible down and read the book of Revelation. And they're going to read about candlesticks and the slain lambs and horns and, and beasts and seals and trumpets and thunders. 
and they're going to say, <sighs> so the Bible, be, the book begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right. You're a revelation teacher. I'm taking that book down. I might have some background in them. I have no background in it. But let's say it, I'm rusty at best. How do I find Jesus in the book of Revelation? It's his book. All the symbols and so forth, all there to point us to Jesus. So how can I prevent myself from getting bogged down and really find Jesus in that book? So I would say to somebody that just like wants to jump in, uh, start reading the book and pay attention to the things that resonate with you that are clearly about Christ. Grab hold of those and begin to meditate on those. So, for example, Revelation chapter 1, as you mentioned, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means it's the revelation that's about him and comes from him, both aspects. Then you just read a few more verses down there, and um, it tells us, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, grace to you and peace. Ah, grace. That's a beautiful Pauline New Testament concept. And then you'll notice that Revelation ends with grace, Revelation 21. So from beginning to end, it's all about grace, what God does for us. Then you skip a few more verses and you find out Jesus is the one that loves us and freed us from our sins and made us to be kings and priests. And then you begin to just track those themes through the book of Revelation. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he's the ultimate ruler. And begin asking questions like that. And then when you come to a point that doesn't seem to make sense, just put it aside for a little bit and really focus on what is clear. And that will help the unclear parts become clear. Yeah, I love that. I want to save your book till last. So I'm going to get out of order here. And I want to come back to your work in self-supporting work. Sure thing. Because you've been a president of an organization that yep. coordinates self-supporting projects all around the world. By self-supporting, I mean not sponsored and funded by an organized church, but these are lay people finding funding to do ministry. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got started in self-supporting work way yep. back then with the restaurants. What is it that turns you on about self-supporting work today? Why is it so important? How does it play into the mission of the church? Well, as you mentioned, I'm president of an organization, Outpost Centers International, OCI, and we support, we encourage uh, 180 ministries, organizations that are doing evangelism on different kinds in over 60 different countries. And our vision is to see this spread into every country in the world, because wherever there are Christians, there should be Christians involved in ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, ministry is not solely the work of the pastor. And so, you know, the vast, the largest part of church is our lay people that unfortunately don't really get involved in ministry. So how do we change that? So we try to communicate the opportunities before people to be involved in ministry. We share what other people have done. We talk about new places to start ministries. And, you know, for me, Um, Again, being both a pastor and uh, involved in ministry on that level, they're distinct callings. Some people are called fully to the gospel ministry, and that's a calling. But most of us, most of your listeners, are called to do their ministry as they do life. And that's really what it means to be a Christian. It's like, I'm going to go to work, 
how's my Christianity going to show up? Um, who can I eat with today and be a Christian witness to? And how can I look for experiences as I do life to impact other people? One of the other things I do need to say about it, this is that supporting ministry has a tremendous amount of freedom. It's like, we want to go do something. Uh, we just have to make it work. And so that's really very refreshing. What's Instead of waiting for um, <clears throat> committees or organizations to give us approval. Amen. <laughs> What's the future of self-supporting work? I only think it's going to grow much more. Um, you know, uh, president of the Adventist Church calls for all members to be involved in church ministry, and that's our burden as well. We want to see this continued growth. And so when I became president of OCI till now, our membership has about doubled. And so it's very exciting to see this ongoing growth all over the place. And that's what we're really looking forward to is Russia, Asia, um, we're praying, talking to some people, praying about entering some closed countries. And just very exciting, very exciting what God appears to be opening doors for. It seems to me that self-supporting work has to grow. The organized work cannot get everything done. Right. If you look at the Bible, you can see what things are going to change around here. And what we've got to have is more and more and more, I'm going to call them lay people, uh, involved in sharing their faith, whether it's through a ministry or just through ministry. It's all very important. Would you agree with that? Totally. And it, it needs to keep moving forward. It needs to keep expanding. Now, I said I wanted to come back and talk to you about your book, Revelations. This, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the title, Stephen. Revelations, Hymns, Commentary on the Cosmic Conflict. Walk me through the book. Tell me about the book. So... Um, the idea of the book, uh, which was the end result of my dissertation, was to explore this conflict theme that we were talking about earlier. And so in Revelation, you find, we call them hymns, short little sections. So for example, in Revelation chapter 4, there are these four living creatures that sing holy, holy, holy around the throne. And then you find a hymn in chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12. 15 and 19. And most scholars have understood that the hymns comment on the activity in the surrounding storyline. So my question was, if that's true, what's the comment they're making? What's the commentary? And so I began to explore the larger narrative structure and concluded that this cosmic conflict, this battle between good and evil, great controversy is at the center of the book, and that each of these hymn sections are really commenting on this battle. So, for example, you have voices of acclamation, God is worthy. You have voices of praise to God. You have voices of proclamation, the Lamb has been slain. But there's also the voice of accusation. And that's Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. And maybe he's an offstage whisper, but his voice is there nonetheless in the thread of Revelation's story. So I explore how these songs are interacting with the great controversy, cosmic conflict throughout the book. Mm, mm, fantastic. Who would you recommend the book to? 
um, anybody that's interested in the book of Revelation. So it's slightly scholarly. Yeah, um, I, the, the bibliography is, 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 is as long as many <laughs> chapters. So it's, a, it's so, you know, clearly it's, it's extremely a scholarly well, book, well researched. But um, I'm a fairly simple writer, but... Uh, check it out from your local library. Uh, individuals can find it there, or it's yeah, it's no, on no, 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 the library. Where, where do we find it? <laughs> Amazon. That, sure. that, that's the good, simple answer these days. Yes, right. Amazon. The book is called Revelations, Hymns, Commentary on the Cosmic Conflict. There's a look at the front cover right there, Stephen Grabner. I would recommend this book to you if you are serious about not not glossing over the book of yeah. Revelation, but digging deep into it. Dr. Grabner has some tremendous insights into the book of Revelation, and and beyond. Hey, thanks. Our time is just about up. It's been a rich privilege. Uh, the privilege has been ours. I want to ask you a final question that I often sure. ask but don't always ask. Let's talk about the, the star of the book of Revelation, Jesus. Mm-hmm. You, had to, you had to find him from a, from a unique place. What does Jesus mean to you today? Mm-hmm. So when, my, when I surrendered uh, December 25th, all those years ago, I forgot the exact year, my world was completely turned upside down, completely changed for the good, for the better. And it's a decision I've never regretted. I'm going to be transparent. There have been times in my Christian walk where my faith was bright, and then there are times when my faith was dim at times. Various things happen in people's lives. But what keeps me is knowing that God is more interested in saving me than I am in being saved. Amen. That he holds me with a hand and will never let go. And, you know, so just the beauty of his interest in me keeps me moving forward. And I can't wait to be part of that group that stands around the sea of glass and looks at that face and just is able to sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. I have a feeling it won't be long. Yeah. Hey, Stephen, thank you very much. I've appreciated it immensely. And thank you for joining us. What a blessing this has been. So... Appreciate you taking your time. I recommend you get the book. Encourage you to be in ministry. Urge your church forward. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. He's coming back soon. Here's Dr. Stephen Grabiner. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been our conversation. <music>